Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hi everyone, it's episode 33 and today it's all about genetic testing. So what I mean by all about genetic testing is we talk about inherited diseases, genetic differences, and embryo testing. So um, we really kind of get to all these little um, nuances behind reasons why those of us who are experiencing fertility issues um, may need to do some genetic testing. So that's what we're hitting on today. Um, admittedly, I am totally clueless when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> it is not my area of expertise in any way, shape, or form. I know nothing about this stuff, which is why I have Megan on the show, Megan Doyle. She's a genetic counselor, and she's going to break everything down for us. Um, and I, I think it will show that I have no idea what's going on, <laughs> but that's okay. We're all learning. So um, I think that's totally fine. Um, there's a reason why I have people on the show who talk about these things, because I don't know at all. Um, the most awesome thing about Megan and having her on is she really breaks down these really kind of complex and um, complicated topics into really easy to understand digestible pieces. So if this is something you are looking into or this is something you're unsure about, um, she does a really great job of keeping things simple. So that's really great. In other exciting news, um, I got a couple of volunteers and I'm so excited about this. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who was spreading the word and everyone who reached out to me. Um, I'm so grateful and thank you for all the very generous donations to um, help support these people and to help support the podcast. So I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, thank you to everyone who is supporting the show in um, as many ways as you can. Um, some ways you can support the show are um, you can buy a coffee. This uh, money will go towards any software that I'm paying for or um, any of the volunteer help. I'd like to at least get them a gift card. Um, and um, you can share the podcast. So share it with people you like. Leave a five-star review, written review, um, and uh, tag me in any of your posts. Um, that would all be super, super helpful to help support the podcast. Um, I am so grateful for that. And so what we're going to be doing, um, and what I'm hoping to do, um, is for each of these episodes, I want to try and do timestamps for topics so that um, if you wanted to, you can just go to the topic that's of most interest to you um, instead of listening to the whole episode if you don't want to. I mean, you know, I think the episodes are really um, nice and they're kind of fun. So um, if you want to listen to the whole episode, that'd be great. But um, I thought breaking down the timestamps would be really great. And it's something I've thought about doing. I just have not had um, the time to be able to do it. So I have hope now, which is wonderful. So I'm so, so excited. Um, and um, hopefully that'll be helpful for you. Let me know if it isn't. Um, please still keep giving me um, suggestions for topics. Um, I'm super open to that. Um, I want to make this as helpful for you all as possible. Um, so any topics that you want to think of, um, just shoot me a DM over on Instagram. Um, the other thing I hope to do is to have a website up sometime so I can categorize these episodes um, by different groups and then make them 
more searchable so you can search for the topics that you want um this will come with a little bit more time and a little bit more donation <laughs> so i need to wait until we can um raise enough money to get someone to put together a website for me um but that's something that i would like to do is as these kind of episodes build up and we have more topics or we get more granular with topics then um, this way people can search and find the topic um, that's most interesting to them and then plus or minus um, if I'm able to get the episodes transcribed in some way then you know you can read it if you want to um, but again that's going to take time um, and um, more fundraising at some point um, but anyway it's all a work in progress so thank you so much for sticking with me thank you so much for being here with me um, thank you for all your support I'm so so grateful um, for you all being here so thank you thank you thank you um, okay so um, as usual I always go kind of long but uh, let's get to it <laughs> Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the 40 and Fertile podcast. And this time we are talking with Megan Doyle, who is a genetic counselor about all things genetics. And um, these are kind of complicated topics, and I'm sure we will not address all of the intricacies in one setting, but hopefully um, after the end of this episode, we'll all have a better understanding of all things genetics and at least the basics of it. So thanks so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. I'm like so excited because there's so much I don't know about this. So you have to forgive me for my very remedial, uh, simple uh, knowledge of all things genetics. That's why you're here. You're here to like teach us all at like a second grade level. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. All of this is, is way too complicated. We are here to simplify it and uh, pretend you know nothing at all. That's a completely <laughs> okay starting point. <laughs> Hooray! Good, good, good. So, I mean, there's, there's like a lot of different things that will come up as far as genetic stuff goes and um, stuff that I didn't even know existed. Like I just, the only thing I was familiar with was like genetic testing of embryos but there's so much more out there that you can actually tap into um, when you're talking about fertility. So um, I'm excited to talk about all of this. I know we won't get to it all, but then that just means you'll have to come back. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We can either have like a three hour podcast that you want to listen to, or I'll just come back. <laughs> That's what the pause button is for. So you can right. always pause and come back, right? So even if it does go three hours, but I, I, I'm with you. I don't think anybody wants to see a three hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, skip. I'm not going to listen to that one. Um, let's just start with learning a little bit more about you. So can we kind of start with how you ended up in this space and working with fertility patients? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been into genetics for a really long time, really since I started my undergraduate career. And um, genetic counseling was a really great way for me to integrate genetics, which I found very interesting. You know, it's the basics for 
how we are the way we are. You know, there's all sorts of other factors, but really it's kind of that underlying thing. And I found that really fascinating and wanted to understand it better. And then genetic counseling just brings in the, the people piece, you know, being able to work with people, support people, help them through difficult times. And so that's really when I knew genetic counseling was going to be the perfect uh, career path for me. Um, Fertility really surprised me, actually. I didn't think that I was going to be a fertility genetic counselor when I started out. Um, Most genetic counselors kind of fall into three different categories. They're either pediatric genetic counselors, cancer genetic counselors, or prenatal genetic counselors once people are already pregnant. But fertility genetic counseling is fairly new. And so it wasn't something that was really focused on when I was in grad school. Um, And I really liked... um, kind of high-risk prenatal genetic counseling, so people who are pregnant um, and maybe something really significant was identified in their pregnancy. Um, certainly not a, a space that I wanted anybody to be in, but if there was going to be a group of people that I wanted to help support with, with my time, I really identified with that in grad school. Um, once I was working and I learned about fertility genetic counseling, I really saw a lot of overlap between um, fertility patients and the groups that I had been working with before, just in that you're so dedicated, you're so much wanting to grow your family, you're experiencing trauma throughout various parts of your you know, journey to do this. And you're really engaged. Um, And that's what's really meaningful for me in the discussions that I have with patients is knowing that the person on the other side of the discussion with me is really listening and cares about what I have to say. That's what makes my career really rewarding for me and not just someone who's there just because their doctor said they should come see me. That's not as it's not as interesting for me. So um, I absolutely connected just with the fertility patient community. just in, and how dedicated you all are to, to growing your families and, and doing whatever you, you can do to make that happen. And I'm going to be right there beside you, helping you do it however I can. So, um, that's kind of how I ended up in fertility. And, um, that combined with a lot of what you alluded to, just the fact that the, there's so much infertility genetics and it's growing so quickly. Um, so it means that I am always learning. I'm on my toes. I'm, uh, I'm, continually kind of researching and learning in that way. And that's uh, just, just really stimulating that scientific side of me too. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's great. I mean, um, the thing that I think of um, most, like I said, is the embryo uh, testing, genetic testing, PGTA or, you know, whatever um, your facility uses. Um, But let's, there are others that, exist, other genetic tests that exist. Um, So what are some of these other genetic tests we can look at? Who should get them? I've heard of like carrier screening and carrier type evaluations. I don't even know what all this is. And, you know, and then maybe we can talk about which labs you might recommend. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So those are really the two other big fertility genetic tests that people might hear of. So I'm not surprised that you've heard of them before. And even their names sound really similar. And so people can get them confused. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's karyotyping with a K um, and carrier screening with a C. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're really doing completely different things. I like to think of karyotyping um, as a test that we do when we're concerned that someone may have a chromosome issue or a genetic concern themselves. 
you know, our chromosomes are the instruction books for our body. Um, and any rearrangements of those can impact ourselves or our fertility or cause a health problem. It can, can have an impact in a lot of different ways. Um, and so in various situations, if someone is presenting with having multiple miscarriages or um, someone who has azospermia, um, someone with premature ovarian insufficiency, you know, we might say, I wonder if there's a chromosome cause for that. Let's look at your chromosomes and order a karyotype. Um, so there's really something in yourself or in your history. And what's, it, what's azospermia? Sorry, that's when someone has no has no sperm, and they they uh, they should have sperm, or where they have a really low sperm count. Yeah. Um, so you, there's kind of something going on with you that suggests to your doctor or your genetics uh, team that there may be a chromosomal issue. We should order this test. Um, it's kind of like PGT on a human or on a on an adult or on a on a child is kind of what that is. Um, Carrier screening is a little bit different. It's oh wait, sorry. Can we back up really quick? Yeah. So um, with the karyotype, right? That's what we just talked about. Karyotype. What are you had mentioned some like azospermia, but what other things? What are other like common things you might find on that, or you know, what are some common concerns that pop up on those that you might see that you will counsel patients on? So mostly we're kind of starting with that medical concern. So azospermia, low sperm count, um, or premature ovarian insufficiency. We, we're kind of starting with the symptom and we're looking for the reason behind it. That's really what the karyotype is for. Um, what it might show us is uh, maybe you have an extra chromosome. Um, often with our sex chromosomes is something we might find. Um, we should have 46 chromosomes with two of each. Um, and our gen genetic sex is determined by our sex chromosomes. So XX for uh, genetically female, XY for genetically male. Um, and having an extra copy of an X chromosome or a Y chromosome or a missing copy um, can sometimes cause fertility concerns. Um, so that's something that we might see, just that instead of having 46 chromosomes, you've got an extra copy and that's been impacting your, your fertility in that way. Um, Something else it might show may be a rearrangement of the chromosomes um, where you have the correct number, um, but kind of two pieces have broken off and then stuck themselves in different places and rearranged uh, themselves. And we call that a translocation. Um, and that can cause things like recurrent miscarriages or infertility or um, birth defects in a, a child. And so, um, so often seeing a family history of something might prompt someone to order a karyotype and identify that. Um, so often in the fertility space, a karyotype may not um, tell you anything new about uh, your health. It's more so explaining something that's already going on for you and why it's happening. Mm -hmm. So at least you kind of have some answer, maybe. I mean, sometimes you can't fix it, but at least you kind of know what you're working with because, which is interesting because I had, it had to have been a karyotype, uh, screening because I, um, I think I have an extra, I'm a mosaic, I guess, but not like crazy. I, I just have like, I, I think I have an extra X 
chromosome somewhere. I, not very many yeah. of them are affected, I, th- I think, because I remember they said they expect X percentage of your chromosomes sure. to be affected. And mine were very like, I'm like super, super mild case, but there was a blurb on there about infertility. I'm like, ah, oh, this might be it. Of course, we're always looking for reasons, right? We want explanations, not just because I'm old. Exactly. And, and it can really, it can really make a difference to have that explanation. If you have just been driving yourself crazy, wondering what's wrong for a lot of people, it can make the difference. And, um, that's exactly how they do a karyotype. That makes sense for your result. They are looking at a certain number of your cells, which hold your chromosomes. Um, and usually all of your cells are the same, uh, but it sounds like some of yours have an extra X and it's only a small percentage of those and most of them are completely normal. So that makes sense. Um, and that karyotype is a pretty routine test done in the fertility space because a lot of um a lot of the times we can have these rearrangements that really don't have any impact on our own health. It's just once we're trying to grow our families that we see these concerns. And then when you're looking at these, like the translocations, are there like a certain percentage or is it that if one exists, that's a problem? Or is there a percentage that you're looking at that then would tell you is it's a problem? Yeah. If you have a translocation, it would be in in every cell. It's kind of in every cell of your body. Um, And it's, it's something where you have all of your genetic material. So it's not really impacting yourself and your own health. Um, But when you're going to pass on your chromosomes and your eggs or your sperm, that that process um, is impacted because your chromosomes aren't arranged the way that they're supposed to be in your cells. And so it impacts how they get passed on to the next generation and can make it so that you're passing on the incorrect number of chromosomes there, which can lead to inviolable sperm, eggs, or or embryos. Um, So for someone with a translocation, not only may we be identifying the cause of of why they're struggling to conceive, um, but it can also then help us with treatment. So we now know that it's probably because their embryos are abnormal. um, And so genetic testing of their embryos is probably going to be especially valuable for those individuals because they're going to make a higher percentage of abnormal embryos than normal. and so we can really kind of focus on the specific issue at hand for them. And is that just a thing that happens? Like you're just, it's just a thing that happens you're born with. It's not something that you have done or something that happened when you were in utero with, you know, when your parent was carrying you. Um, is that kind of just, it's just some people just um, unfortunately have this issue? Yeah, the sometimes it's just something that can happen randomly. Again, as we're passing on our chromosomes to the next generation, sometimes mistakes can happen um, and chromosomes kind of, again, break and they try to fix themselves, but they fix themselves incorrectly. And so if that sperm or egg leads to a pregnancy, that person would then have that translocation. Um, Sometimes they're inherited. Um, So it's possible you got it from one of your parents. um, And maybe they just didn't have any fertility concerns um, or they did. And that's especially kind of a red flag if we have two generations of people um, with infertility or miscarriages or or losing pregnancies later in the pregnancy. Um, Those are all things that a genetic counselor would look at. We would take your whole family history, really focusing on on fertility and seeing is there a higher chance of finding a translocation in this family. Okay. Sorry. Tangent. Carrier screening. (laughs) 
stuck carrier screening. Carrier screening. <laughs> that wasn't a tangent. That was perfect. Um, that was beautiful. So carrier screening is very different from a karyotype um, because carrier screening is is available for anybody who's growing their family, whether they're working with a fertility clinic or or they're just starting about thinking about expanding their family. Um, we know that a lot of genetic conditions um, don't uh, people don't have a family history of them, and so someone born with them is, is kind of the first person in the family to show that, and it's a really big surprise to their their parents. Um, and the reason for that is because these genetic conditions are recessive. Um, and so that means that both the sperm and the egg provider are kind of silent genetic carriers of these things. Um, and if they're both carriers for the same recessive genetic condition, there's a 25% chance with every pregnancy they have that their child will have that really genetic disorder. Um, but carriers, they don't have any symptoms. They're completely healthy. Um, there's usually nobody in their family that has that condition. And so people are usually very surprised when they have a child with one of these disorders. Um, and a lot of these disorders are really severe things that um, significantly impact a child's quality of life and that we don't have any treatment for. Um, so people sometimes want to know about that type of risk before they get pregnant. Um, and so carrier screening is basically a way to test um, to reproductive partners for usually hundreds of these recessive conditions. Um, everybody is a carrier for something. Uh, it's just a matter of if you're a carrier for the same thing as your reproductive partner, then we know that there's a risk and we can do something further if, if you decide that's what you want to do. And if you, the only way you kind of know that is if you've had a pregnancy that was affected, right? Enough times where you say, whoa, because otherwise you wouldn't know, right? Like you said, there's, they have no symptoms. They would have no way of really knowing unless they ran into this issue a couple of times where we say, time out, maybe we need to explore if there's some underlying genetic condition that we didn't know about that's contributing to this. Is that right? Yeah. Usually they, if it, usually they would have a child who's really sick with something like usually in the newborn period, or maybe they're too old, but they're such severe diseases that it, it prompts genetic testing for the child. Um, and then we fit, we figure out what it is, then the parents get tested and we realize that they're both carriers. Um, had they were carrier screening before they conceived, they would have known that that risk was there right from the start um, and maybe would have choose to do um, IVF with genetic testing of the embryos or genetic testing during the pregnancy. Lots of various options that they would have had available. Maybe they wouldn't have taken any of them, but at least they wouldn't have been shocked at the at the outcome. Let's go back to kind of the karyotype. Um, are there, I know we talked about a few, but are there common for those who are struggling uh, with fertility? You talked about uh, translocation um, and you, maybe extra sex chromosomes. Are there any other common things that will pop up for anyone who's struggling to conceive on that type of testing? Those are definitely... Those are definitely the most common is, is a translocation or um, extra or missing chromosomes, but um, kind of the genetic conditions that are associated with those extra chromosomes are um, 
what we would call Klinefelter syndrome for males. Um, so they have an extra X chromosome and that's something that can cause azospermia. Um, and kind of for females, something we often see is something called Turner syndrome, um, where people are missing an X chromosome, sometimes mosaic and in some cells, sometimes in, in what looks like every cell. And that can be a common cause of premature ovarian insufficiency as well. So those are kind of the two most common things that we're looking for. But what's interesting is that most of the time when we do a karyotype outside of fertility, we're doing it for people who are really sick or they have birth differences or intellectual disabilities. Um, people with infertility are usually pretty healthy. Um, so sometimes we find things maybe, you know, like what's going on for, for what you mentioned with yourself that are maybe more common than we think in the general population, but because most people don't get this test done, we don't really know about it. Um, so I think with the karyotype though, translocations and extra and missing copies of chromosomes are really the most common things that we're going to see there. Um, it's not a comprehensive genetic test. It's not looking for, um, small genetic changes. It's not looking for the same things that carrier screening can find at all. It's kind of really limited. It's looking at a, um, I always use the analogy that the chromosomes are like the instruction books that hold the genes, which are the individual instructions. Um, all the karyotype is doing, it's counting how many instruction books you have and making sure they're in the right order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when I talked to when I did my testing, and I don't know if all labs are like this, and maybe you can speak to that too. But after I had done my testing, um, I got to speak, I had an appointment with a genetic counselor, and it lasted all of like four minutes only because you know, like, uh, it's such a small amount. I don't know that it's really because I just wanted to know more, right? <clears throat> and so, you know, she said, oh, I don't know that this is really like, you know, affecting you, it may or may not it's such a small amount that I don't I don't know that it's contributing to your problem. I'm like, but I want to blame something. <laughs> like, I want to blame this on something. Can't I just blame it on this? Um, she's like, ah, I don't know. It's hard to say. So um, does every, do you know the labs that do this type of testing? Do they offer a genetic counselor each time or not? Uh, not always? Um, karyotyping is a test that is really widely available. And it's, it's one of the longest genetic tests that's been available. It's for decades and decades. So um, unlike something like embryo testing, uh, karyotyping has been around forever. Um, and so it, it will really depend on the size of the laboratory that's doing it for you, what kind of what services they're offering. Um, if it's just um, like at a, a smaller hospital facility, they may not have a genetic counselor on staff. Um, if it's an international genetic counseling laboratory, that may be something that they offer. Um, but in terms of the test, um, generally a karyotype at one location is going to be the same as a karyotype at another location. It's, it's standard. There's not a lot of differences in how it's performed for the most part. Um, so um, there can be, you know, maybe minor differences in how it's interpreted. You know, maybe you speak to one person and they say, you know what, in my experience, this is, is not really impacting things. And someone may say, you know what, I had the same thing happen. And I think it is. But usually the results are pretty clear cut. Um, if we ran the test again, we'd get the same result over and over and over again. And so for, for karyotyping, things are a lot more straightforward than some of the other tests. Okay. Um, and then what about the carrier screenings? Are there... 
are there common anomalies we see in people trying to conceive um, or struggling? Or um, I know we talked a little bit about some of these, but I know some people will screen for, say, like sickle cell anemia or, you know, depending on sometimes even your ethnic or religious background, then um, you might be at higher risk for things like Tay-Sachs and things like that, right? So are, are though, I mean, aside from that stuff that we hear about, are there any other common ones um, that we need to, um, that people kind of think about doing carrier screening for? Yeah, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Often carrier screening used to be based on kind of your, your ancestry or your ethnicity, um, your, your, your bloodline um, to determine what you were at highest risk for. So um, just like you said, people who are from Asia or from Africa have a higher chance of sickle cell disease or conditions of the blood called thalassemia. Um, people who are Caucasian have a higher chance of cystic fibrosis. That's a really uh, common lung condition that we think about. Um, but when it comes to um, the, the people who are struggling to conceive specifically, um, really there's nothing targeted or nothing specific with carrier screening that we need to be thinking about. Um, carrier screening is, is not a fertility test. Mm -hmm. It is really to say, you know, once that baby is in your arms, mm -hmm. is there a higher chance of them having a genetic condition? Mm -hmm. um, not really at all about why are we having trouble getting pregnant? Why mm -hmm. are we miscarrying? Or it's really not trying to diagnose anything like a karyotype okay. is. Um, so that's kind of really why we don't tailor it based on um, maybe your diagnosis. It's maybe we could tailor things to your ancestry, but um, honestly, we're learning that it's um, harder and harder to know exactly what your ancestry might be. Mm -hmm. um, and even people who aren't from certain areas of the world can have genetic conditions that are not commonly from there. So we're um, taking more of a, a pan-ethnic um, approach these days, and mostly people are getting the same um carrier screening panels offered regardless of their ancestry. Because mm -hmm. I was only thinking like maybe if there are these um, genetic anomalies that maybe, um, you know, your pregnancy wouldn't be carried to term because of this disease or whatever. But that seems to be more of a karyotype mm -hmm. thing than it is a like a recessive kind of thing? Yeah. And and most of the time, the conditions that we're looking at on carrier screening, most of them make it to term oh, okay. um, and present either shortly after birth or in the first few years of life or, or later in childhood. Um, if there's a genetic condition that is recessive, that's causing really early pregnancy loss or or later pregnancy losses, um, there's usually something else that would make your doctor suspect that there was something else going on mm -hmm. and they would target that one gene, um, again, more as a diagnostic test to say, we've got some symptoms, let's look at this specifically. Um, whereas again, carrier screening is not really going to be um, finding anything especially helpful. Um, it's more so just to help make sure that future baby is going to be uh, free from those conditions. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was kind of lucky because my doctor offered um, the karyotype screening to me um, when I first met her. She just said, you know, hey, this is an option because I had one great. I had uh, one failed IVF round at about 38 and my um, my embryos came back. I had two, two blastocysts. Um, they were tested and like multiple abnormalities, like just like 
it felt like I, I joked around with one of these other warriors that I talked about. It felt like he like opened up the cartoon thing and then the pages kept dropping with all the like anomalies. Oh, no. I was like, oh, okay, that's probably not good. It just kind of kept rolling and rolling and rolling. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a lot. So after after that, I, I met with a new doctor, <clears throat> started with a new doctor and she said, well, we could do this. We could, you know, do a karyotype screening or uh, testing. And I was like, uh, I mean, why not? You know, um, I will say it's not cheap. <laughs> and where I am, it's not covered by yeah. my health plan. So it, I have to pay cash for it. Um, but I was fortunate because it, it was offered to me. It, it was an option that I got. And yeah. I didn't really know. I, I had not known that something like that existed that I could look into. So for some people who are just finding out this, this thing exists and maybe if their doctor isn't supportive or they don't have access to this test, or maybe they're refusing to order it, what would you recommend or who would you recommend that they talk to if they really felt strongly about wanting to get like a karyotype test or something. Yeah, um, that's something that I talk to patients a lot about. So talking to a, a genetic counselor is a, a really great route to go because um, we can we can kind of look at things from both sides. We can sometimes give you ammo to make your case and, and fight for why that test is going to be helpful for you. Um, or if you're on the fence, you know, you're like, I'm not, I, if I don't have to pay for it, I, I don't really want to, um, but I don't want to miss anything. Um, we can take a look at your family history and your fertility history, and it's both reproductive partners, and see if we have any suspicions based on any testing that's done that there may be a, a concern and can maybe help help you decide if you feel like it's worthwhile to do the test or if you don't think it's uh, it's going to be helpful for you. Um, that's really where we we come in. You know, the, these are really hard decisions. There are a lot of different factors you're trying to, to consider. And um, we, we've kind of got the knowledge uh, to help you have the scientific side to pull in all of those factors and make that decision. So I think a genetic counselor is a really good person to speak to. Um, if, you're, if you're on the fence or you're looking for, um, yeah, just kind of for some backup in, uh, in advocating for yourself. Let's talk about uh, embryo testing. Um, what is it and who should do it? <laughs> Great question. So embryogenetic testing, we call it uh, PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. Um, there are actually three, four types of PGT. Um, any type of test we're doing on an embryo before it's transferred into a uterus is, is genetic testing done before implantation. Um, but usually we're, we're referring to kind of the subtype called PGTA. Um, and the A means that we're testing for aneuploidy, which means chromosome abnormalities. Um, so really the goal with PGTA is uh, even if you did your karyotype and everything is normal with your own chromosomes and um, you know both reproductive partners have normal chromosomes, it's really, really hard to pass on your chromosomes correctly to your embryos. And it's really common for mistakes to happen in that process. Um, and embryos with chromosome abnormalities can't lead to ongoing pregnancies. Um, so kind of the idea being that if we know which embryos are chromosomally normal, we can focus on transferring those embryos and hopefully lead you to a pregnancy faster. Um, so that's what it is. Um, who should do it? I think everybody should be offered PGTA, um, but I think 
who should do it is up to that individual only. Um, there is, <laughs> I want to describe it as bickering um, in the scientific community about the value of PGTA and who it's best for. Um, and even some of the research is conflicting about if it's, if it's useful or not. Um, so I think that, I hope that you have lots of follow-up questions, but I think that there are, um, it's a really good opportunity again to speak with a genetic counselor or learn more or ask questions before um, you do your IVF cycle to find out um, if it's something you are comfortable doing and paying for. And if you feel like it's going to add value to your, your IVF cycle is my short answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know for me, the reasons why I'm doing, cause you know, a large part of our listener group is like 35 and over I'm over 40. And so knowing that um, my egg quality is poor and knowing that as I'm getting older, the quality of my eggs get worse and worse. For me, um, it is worthwhile because, you know, w once you do the transfer, and there's a lot that goes into the transfer, not just like the experience of the transfer, but, you know, what it really means. And for people, I think, who want to minimize well, maybe that's not the right word to say, but who, you know, it, 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 who don't want to go through like maybe multiple losses. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it will implant. Yeah. There's no guarantee that a normal embryo is going to implant. Like that's still yeah. like an issue that can happen. But I think mm -hmm. for me, I just want to know so I can transfer the best quality embryos to give the best opportunity to reduce chances of miscarriage. It does not completely take away any chance of miscarriage. It doesn't mean that just because you have a normal embryo, you're going to have implantation and like a healthy, happy pregnancy. Things can still happen. But for me, that's what, you know, th those are the things that I think about. And I think that's the other thing to bring up too, is that the, even if you get a normal embryo, it does not guarantee that you'll have a, a perfect pregnancy. Would you agree? Yeah. You have hit on so many important points there. That is, is so important to know is that you, you do need normal chromosomes to have an ongoing pregnancy, but it is not the only thing that you need whatsoever. There are so many other factors, you know, a lot that we don't understand. Um, and so getting that, what we call a euploid result, getting a normal result on PGTA um, is, is a good step in the right direction. But um you know, maybe we see a you know a seventy percent pregnancy rate with a euploid embryo. That's three out of ten euploid embryos that won't be successful. Mm -hmm. And do you do you look at the grade of the embryo too when you're looking at the the results? Do you do you ever like look at the two together? Like that you get the results back from the testing, and then because I think on the t on the report that we get is the grade of the embryo also on the report, isn't there? Yeah, it depends on the PGT lab, but a lot of them do include it. And if you have multiple euploid embryos, often the grading is what we go back to. Um, because, it, you know, the embryos are on an equal playing field from a genetic standpoint. So if we have, uh, if that's often the best, uh, the next best factor. Um, and I kind of include the, the, the day that the embryo became a blastocyst, the day the genetic testing was done, I kind of include it amongst the grading. Um, some doctors... 
uh, you know, keep that in mind more than others, but um, kind of grading and, and all of that is, is kind of the next factor I would look at and kind of prioritizing your embryos for transfer. And do you, do you prioritize the younger embryos or the older ones? Like if it's a day five versus day six versus day seven? Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. So usually um, if they've been genetically tested, um, then I usually defer to the doctor that the person is, is working with. But it seems like the doctors, in my experience, do prefer a day five embryo over a day six embryo over a day seven embryo. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're chromosomally normal, we we expect kind of the 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 expectation is that an embryo can reach that stage by day five. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's already growing a little bit slower, I think they like to see that it's just able to do things right on time. Mm-hmm. So if there's one that did that, that's probably what the doctor would prefer. When when we do PGTA testing, um, what are the possible results that we might get? And which ones will potentially, and I say potentially underlined, italicized, <laughs> bold, potentially, I like yeah, <laughs> potentially viable pregnancy. So there's really four uh, types of results. There are euploid embryos, um, which are chromosomally normal on the result. Um, there was, you know, what everybody's crossing their fingers for. Um, then the opposite of euploid is aneuploid. Um, that means they're showing some sort of chromosome abnormality. Um, and usually those embryos are not considered for transfer because we expect the chromosome abnormality will cause failed implantation, miscarriage, uh, or a child with some sort of genetic syndrome like Down syndrome. Then there's a mosaic result, um, which is a very hot topic and it kind of means (laughs) it's in between those two. So some, um, some level of normal, but some level of abnormal, and it's kind of right in between. And then um, there's kind of different terms for this, but also um, kind of a no result or an inconclusive result. Um, And there's various reasons that that can happen, but it just means that we don't know what the chromosomes of, of that uh, sample look like. Um, Technically, all four of those categories could lead to a a viable ongoing pregnancy and a healthy live birth, but there's some that are a lot more likely than others. So euploid embryos are the most likely, um, aneuploid embryos are the least likely, um, but PGT is not 100% accurate. Every lab is different, but usually we say it's greater than 97% accurate. Um, But that leaves about 1% to 2% inaccuracy or or chance of of a false uh, result. Um, So it's technically not impossible for an aneuploid embryo to have been called aneuploid when it isn't Mm -hmm. and then become a healthy baby for that reason. Um, If it's truly aneuploid, it can't, but because of of limitations and if, if it's a you know, a false positive, there's a very, very, very small chance that it could. But usually if you're doing PGT, you're kind of trusting in that accuracy rating and and we're not considering those aneuploid embryos for transfer. Um, I'll save mosaics for last because they're the most complicated, but um, no result embryos. I think of no result embryos a lot of the time, like you haven't even tested them. Um, it, It can depend on why we didn't get a result, but sometimes it just means um, there was a problem with the sample that we took. Um, it may not mean anything about your embryo at all. And it's kind of just like an untested embryo. Um, 
the chances of it being normal or abnormal are based on the age of the egg provider. Um, and so the chances of it becoming a healthy live birth are based on the age of the egg provider as mm-hmm. well. Can, can we talk about that really quick about the age of the egg provider? So mm-hmm. uh, I'm older <laughs> and the whole reason I kind of started this whole thing, this whole podcast was to kind of target the older age group. So yeah. can can we talk about, at least from your standpoint as a genetic yes. counselor, when you see someone who's older, quote unquote older, what do you consider mm-hmm. older? And then what are your concerns with older? I guess with egg or sperm? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, for eggs, we kind of see um, your eggs are more likely to start showing more chromosome abnormalities once you're 35. Um, and it, it sh- slowly your, your eggs are more likely to have those chromosome abnormalities as your age increases, but it kind of goes more dramatically higher as you turn 40. Um, so I, I kind of think it's really a sliding scale. Um, this is a not helpful for an audio medium. um, (laughs) It's really kind of like a curve. (laughs) Uh Yeah. And, um, anybody at any age can make a euploid embryo and anybody at any age can make an aneuploid embryo. Um, but I think that it becomes a lot harder to make a euploid embryo, um, kind of at 40 and older. Um, often then it kind of becomes a numbers, it's always a numbers game in in all of this, isn't it? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you kind of reminded me of something, you know, thinking about who should do PGT. Um, and, you know, you brought up a really good point as, as, um, the egg provider gets older, um, embryos are more likely to be abnormal. So a lot of the time we think PGT is, is best for people in kind of this older age group. Um, Having worked with more people who are are in that age range, um, I'm I'm hearing more that there there's more concerns because you're making less embryos. Um, so if you're someone who maybe Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just gonna take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. back to our episode. You know, you're making one embryo every cycle and you're going to want to give it a shot no matter what. You know, if you're, if you're just going to say to me, you know, if there's a one to 2% chance that this aneuploid isn't abnormal and the PGT result is wrong, I'm going to want to transfer it anyway. You're not really using those PGT results. You know, you're going to want to give that embryo a chance maybe save your money, save the intervention on the embryo and just don't do the PGT testing. Um, if you have a lot of embryos, sometimes it can be more helpful because you'll probably have some normal, some abnormal, and it's really helping you sort through them. Um, anyway, I, I could talk, I could probably do a whole, pod, whole podcast just on who the considerations for doing or not doing PGT, but um, yeah, we'll just put it on the just schedule. Something that I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> just something I wanted to mention that, um, if, if you if you are quote unquote older and um, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it and it's something you can explore with a genetic counselor if you feel like it's not for you that doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong you can you can sometimes trust often trust your gut and uh, just kind of explore a little bit further whether whether the test will be helpful for you or not because for some people it is but for others it isn't so 
let me ask you this. Have you seen any of the aneuploid um, embryos go on to become a healthy baby? Have you known anyone? There are kind of two subtypes of aneuploid embryos. Um, one is pretty straightforward and one we're learning is maybe more likely to be, be mosaic than we thought. Um, even when it doesn't show mosaicism, we call them segmental aneuploids where just part of a chromosome is abnormal rather than the whole thing. Um, I don't know anybody personally, but I've worked with doctors who have transferred segmental aneuploid embryos and had healthy live births. Um, and there was a paper published recently that showed about a, I, I think they only transferred 40 embryos, um, but they saw a 30% pregnancy rate with segmental aneuploids. Um, so we're really starting to differentiate even amongst that category, the different types among that, and it's becoming a lot more complicated. Um, I know from a paper, one of kind of the usually clear cut embryo that we don't recommend for transfer, one has led to a healthy live birth um, that's been put in a paper, um, but there wasn't a lot of information about it. So it's hard to know um, all that went on. Could they have just conceived naturally after the transfer? There's um, oh I, yeah, I have gotcha. questions. But is the error rate tied to um, because you're biopsying the trifectoderm, right? Is that right? Mm -hmm. You're biopsying the trifectoderm, yeah. so you're getting placenta. You're not getting like tissue, like baby tissue, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. I think when the laboratories are reporting their accuracy or their error ratings, um, it's more so: can we accurately detect what's in the cells we got? Um, so, truly, the trifectoderm and what we're testing can we test what's actually there? And sometimes just genetic tests don't do what we think they will do. And so, you know, one to 2% of the time they may get it wrong. Um, but you bring up another source of error with PGT that maybe is not included in that, which is we're testing cells that will eventually become the placenta. And usually those are genetically identical to the cells that will become the baby, but sometimes they are different. Um, and with euploid embryos, when they've done studies where they've had embryos donated to research so they can test all of the different areas, um, usually when we get a euploid result, the whole embryo is euploid, you know, 98, 99% of the time. Um, and, and same with kind of that straightforward whole chromosome aneuploid result. Usually if we get that type of result, the whole embryo, including the part that will become the baby is usually abnormal as well. So, um, if you if you do what I, what I kind of if you're as deep into it as I am and looking at the reports, you can usually um, have a sense of what what are the chances that this is a, a truly accurate result from kind of the research that's been done on on the embryos before. So, because I mean, when we get these results from the PGTA um, testing, right, we don't always get a chance to talk to a genetic counselor or anything like that. Like we usually get the report and like you get this thing that tells you which ones are abnormal or that it is normal or whatever. <clears throat> but if they're abnormal, usually, you know, you can talk it over with your um, fertility doctor. But, um, you know, if we wanted to um, 
if we want to explore the results a little bit more, then maybe speaking to someone like you would be helpful, right? Just as like a consultation to say, hey, can you explain to me what the benefits are of like before, if you wanted to, and I'm not saying everybody needs to do this, but you know, if you're mm-hmm. thinking about, if you don't have a lot of embryos and you're thinking about discarding and thinking about which ones that you should discard or keep, because I, I am one of those people who makes one embryo each time I do a, yeah. a retrieval. So, yeah. you know, I've gotten one normal embryo and every other one has been abnormal. And some of them are really, really abnormal. And some of them are like kind of abnormal, you know, but a lot of them have multiple genetic abnormalities. But um, so if you're really struggling to really understand what that all means and whether or not it's something that you want to keep or not, would that be beneficial to reach out to someone like you and just say, hey, can we just take a peek at this and just tell me? And then you know, you have no reason to like not give an honest answer to say like, you know what, this really does not, is not beneficial for you to keep. You should discard this. Is that how that conversation would go? That is exactly how it should go. Um, I, um, I started my own private genetic counseling practice so that I could have these discussions openly kind of without, without any bias. Um, you know, if you're working for a genetic testing laboratory, um, you know, there may be certain things that you have to say or, you know, a certain way that you have to present information. And if you're a genetic counselor with the clinic, you may be swayed a little bit by, you know, the embryos that the doctors will transfer. You know, there are um, doctors will ever transfer euploid embryos and some will transfer a mosaic and and probably should be giving their patients that option. Um, For myself, since I'm not affiliated with any laboratories or any clinics, I've I really enjoy that freedom of just being able to say, you know, like, this is what the research shows. Where are you at? What have you been through? Let's figure out what's best for you. um, Because what's best for you might not be what your doctor says, or, you know, what's best for the fertility clinic stats, um, or or things like that. And so um, I would, I would highly encourage that. And and like you say, it's not, not everybody needs that. Um, but some people, um, you know, want that closure or honestly, I think a lot more people should be getting this level of detail, but, um, I'll, I'll work on that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's start the crazy talk around mosaic. I know it's going to bring up a lot of stuff. Um, because a little while ago there was all kinds of buzz around mosaic, right? There's this article that came out and it was like, oh my gosh. So can we kind of define what mosaic is and what does that mean for implantation or pregnancy? Yeah. So mosaic means that for the cells that we tested, you know, we expect them to either be all normal or all abnormal. And with a mosaic result, it's kind of suggesting that some of the cells had normal chromosomes inside of them, but some of the cells had abnormal chromosomes inside of them. So it's kind of a mixture and some of the embryo is euploid and some of the embryo is aneuploid. Um, I kind of like to think of them like a soccer ball. So there's patches that are different from one another within the whole of the embryo. What that means for the embryo itself um, can depend on a lot of different factors. Um, When I'm having a consult with a patient with a mosaic embryo, there are at least four factors on the PGT report that I'm looking at that can kind of help us categorize the mosaic and try to determine the chance of a pregnancy. So some are more likely than others, but... Mosaic embryos, we 
we're early in our research days still. So, um, some labs still don't even report mosaicism. Um, so not all PG labs even look for that. Um, Generally, we think that mosaic embryos can become completely healthy babies, um, but their risks are mostly in the first trimester. So there's probably a lower chance of them implanting into the uterus um, and a higher chance of them leading to a first trimester miscarriage. But most likely, if everything goes well through that first trimester, you'll probably have a completely healthy baby. Um, we've been transferring mosaic embryos for, for years now, um, and there's less than five reported cases of babies with any genetic syndromes or birth defects or things of that nature. So um, we still always want more and more, more, more data, and I, I definitely still want that, but it has been reassuring so far that there hasn't been a, a significantly high number of, of abnormalities that we've seen. You know, the reality is before that was even available, those probably would have been transferred anyway. Right before, yeah, like there were any testing, or if you chose not to test or whatever, chances are they would have been transferred anyway because you wouldn't know which to discard unless the quality was so poor that whichever lab, IVF lab that you were working with, didn't freeze, you know, the ones that were really poor quality or or something like that. Yeah, and um, and you know the the there I've seen sometimes. Mosaic embryos have a beautiful grading and a euploid embryo may have a not so great grading. The, the grading does not really seem to correlate with the genetic results. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily know. And um, what we think happens with mosaic embryos well, they're kind of two things. One, it's possible the result was incorrect. So maybe it was a euploid embryo all along, and that's why it became a healthy baby. Um, but kind of the, the big hot topic is self-correction. Can these embryos fix themselves and become normal embryos? Um, and we think that's what is happening with these mosaic embryos is, you know, you think about them like that soccer ball, if the black spots are the abnormal cells, um, they're not very healthy. So after the embryo transfer, those abnormal cells may die off. Um, and as long as there are enough normal cells remaining, they can grow really quickly, kind of patch in the gaps. And then you've got a completely normal euploid embryo that is only made of euploid cells. And so it's going to go on to become a completely healthy baby with normal chromosomes. Um, and if that process can't happen, if there's too many abnormal cells, they're just probably going to have too big of a burden on the embryo. Things will kind of resolve in the first trimester. Okay. Because that would be my other question. I guess I just assumed that whatever blueprint was laid out and there is the blueprint that you're working with. But it sounds like, because I was like, oh, well, what if you have some with multiple genetic abnormalities? Could they change after implantations like say say you didn't test right let's just hypothetically say you didn't test and then you transferred day three could while it implants and cells are replicating could you know could that change I know it's hard to say but I I've I'm curious as to whether or not you know that because it sounds like uh, plus or minus it's it's all you know uh, experimental investigational stuff that we're talking about because it's just <laughs> I mean like how do you test for that right like the only way to test is to biopsy and check cells and no one's going to do that you know on a viable pregnancy for the purposes of research or anything like that at least 
right now, right? So it's all speculation as to whether or not this can happen. But it sounds like potentially for a mosaic, because there's more normal cells than abnormal cells, but probably less likely in one with a lot more abnormal cells than normal cells. Yeah, exactly. Less likely, but it's hard because we only tested, you know, five to 10 cells. So it's possible that, you know, we get a result that is what we say a high level mosaic. So more of those cells are abnormal. Um, but maybe there's still a lot of normal cells in your embryo. So it really is about the embryo as a whole. And we've only looked at a teeny tiny sliver of it. And that's where, um, you know, we can generalize and make assumptions based on the little sliver of information we're looking at um, and do the best that we can, but we can never see the, the whole the whole pie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it sounds like based on what you're saying from a research perspective, the majority of the time, it's fairly accurate. It's greater than 95% accurate. Typically speaking, yeah. if that, it, I mean, there's always room for error, but um, if that happens, and, and you were saying before that the majority of the embryo tends to match what was tested, only because I don't want people to panic either and be like, oh my gosh, I discarded all these embryos. And it's, I, you know, what if I discarded one that was, that could have potentially be a viable pregnancy? The, it sounds like the answer is there's a, a very, very small percentage that they can. And the chances of that being normal are low. They exist, but the chance of it being normal are fairly low. And certainly if that's something yeah. you're considering in the future or something, then maybe, you know, with your report, talk to someone like you or something to kind of sort that out to see, is this is really something you want to consider. And of course there are like a thousand other factors to consider, right? If you're 25 versus 45, like that's a different conversation to have, but you know, in those two different age groups, when you're 25, Depending, you know, if you have POI or something, you probably will feel more like a 45-year-old, right? Because you're like, I only have so many times that I can do this. There's so many other options that I have based on, you know, what what reserve I have left. But let's say that your egg count, your AMH is, you know, relatively normal and your egg quality um, is, you know, plus or minus, then you may be able to have some time because you have the volume of eggs as opposed to, someone who's older, um, who has lower AMH maybe, or, or contending with an egg quality issue, um, then maybe that's a, a different discussion. But I guess the other thing that comes up too from your end, um, I know all of us are trying to find ways that we can improve our egg quality or somehow see if there's something we can do for our egg quality. From your standpoint, is there anything we should be doing aside from, you know, supplementation that, you know, um, we get from our, our supplementation plans we get from our doctors or, you know, acupuncture, anything like that? Is there anything else you would recommend as far as like egg quality to kind of help us have the best possible chance of getting these normal embryos? There doesn't seem to be a lot that we can do to change things that are related to age and the fact that the chromosomes are more likely to be abnormal. Um, but if we can change how many embryos you end up with, that's really the, the biggest factor because we're working with, again, it's all a numbers game. So if you get from one blastocyst to two blastocysts, you've just doubled your chances of having a chromosomally normal embryo. So I just say, Anything you can to, um, yeah, follow your doctor's uh, advice for improving things is, uh, 
is a-okay on my standpoint. But uh, yeah, I, I feel, uh, I really wish there was something I could offer. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought I would ask. You never know, you know. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a few questions that were submitted. So let's get to those. Does uh, PGT affect the thaw rate? Yeah, great question. So in terms of does does PGT change the chance of an embryo successfully thawing. Um, more so, we're thinking about the biopsy that's happened. So we, we're doing an intervention. Um, we're taking some cells away. Um, as far as we know, a single biopsy should have fairly low impact on the embryo overall when it's done by a really skilled and highly trained embryologist. Um, so I would ask this question to your clinic and your embryology team specifically. What is their laboratory's experience with PGT and embryo loss and thaw rates? And do their thaw rates differ between PGT tested embryos and untested embryos? Um, there shouldn't be a huge difference. Um, and if there is, maybe that's a factor for you to consider in, in, in doing PGT or not. Um, the next question is, and I have no idea what this is, so maybe you do. <laughs> um, what is your opinion on Natera Spectrum? Uh, yeah, Natera Spectrum, that is kind of a brand of PGT. Um, so Natera, Natera is a genetic testing laboratory. Um, Spectrum is the name of their PGT. Um, so... <laughs> As far as I'm aware, um, Natera doesn't report mosaic results, um, and I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of that. So I may be I hope I'm not misspeaking, but um, I feel that it's really valuable to have all four categories of results available to you. Um, there is increasing evidence to suggest that mosaic embryos are truly a distinct category of embryo. Um, and they really are in the middle. They're not as good as euploid embryos. They're not as bad as aneuploid embryos. Um, and when a laboratory or a clinic decides not to report mosaicism, um, that means mosaic embryos are getting lumped in either with euploids um, or with aneuploids. Um, and if a mosaic embryo is called euploid, um, that group of euploid embryos is going to have a lower chance of pregnancy than it should for a euploid embryo. It's, it's, it's not going to be as successful. Um, and if we're calling a mosaic embryo aneuploid, that mosaic embryo could have led to a healthy baby. Now it has that aneuploid label and we're pretty much writing it off. Um, so I think that as, as long as the patient agrees and is on the same page, I think that more information is better. Um, and that it's important for that decision to be left with the patient rather than the laboratory or with the clinic. And which labs do uh, report mosaicism? Um, there are tons of PGT labs out there, kind of the big ones being um, Cooper, Cooper Genomics and iGenomics, and they both, uh, they both report mosaicism. But the clinics at the clinic level can choose to opt out. Um, so even if you know your clinic works with one of those big laboratories, it's still important to ask your clinic um, what kind of they've opted into, will they um, allow you to transfer a mosaic embryo if you get a mosaic result? Um, those are all important questions for your clinic specifically. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I just thought if it was offered, it would just show up on the report. Depends on what your what your doctor finds valuable for, um, for the test. Yeah. How much history of illnesses um, in a potential donor's family matters? So most uh, most donors, so sperm and egg donors, are um, 
So I'm more familiar with uh, the screening that's done in Canada. So I'm based in Canada, but I offer genetic counseling internationally. So um, Health Canada requires donors to undergo at least three generation family history questionnaire. And I believe everything is done similarly in the U.S. Um, so it, it's kind of what, what in safe um, would be if the, the donor themselves has a genetic disorder that they're kind of symptomatic with. It's very obvious, you know, they they do a physical assessment or we take their history and they've been diagnosed with something that's going to get passed on to the next generation with a really, really high chance that would obviously be excluded. Um, most, uh, most donors undergo carrier screening. So to see if they're a carrier for something recessive, um, that would not exclude a donor because almost all of us are carriers for something recessive, um, but it would be a good indication for the person, um, for either the, the egg or sperm or the recipient to um, get carrier screening themselves to make sure they're compatible with the donor. Um, but it does get really challenging when we think about the family history of the donor and diseases that are in the family um, because most most conditions that we see in a family are what we call multifactorial. Um, so maybe there's a genetic component, but there's probably environmental components too. Um, or maybe it's a bunch of genes that are working together and it's not as clear cut as we really like it to be. Um, so things like heart disease, for example, um, you know, there may be genetic factors there that are, are um, giving people a higher risk of getting heart disease. Um, but there's also a lot we can do in terms of lifestyle, food, exercise, and things like that to help manage things too. Um, so the genetic counselor who's taking the family history will have a good sense of what the red flags are, um, you know, what is high risk for a genetic condition and, and may make this donor too risky, um, and, and what is just kind of common and in the general population expected in the average family. Um, and what I really like, again, I'm just all about it be informed and decisions being left with um, with the patients. What I really like to see from a good um, egg or sperm bank is that you're given all of that detail. So, okay, maybe there is a family history of um, asthma or ADHD or, or something of that nature. Um, I love it when the genetic report spells out for you, okay, this is in the family. That means that a child born from this donor maybe has a 10 to 20% chance of getting asthma, ADHD, you know, whatever it might be um, compared to someone without this family history. And you can kind of decide for yourself if you think that's a risk that's too high or not, because it's not really clear cut. Um, so it's, it's something that is often just, um, you know, available for you and, and you can decide from there. But another time that I am happy to help you, if, if you have something specific that you're worried about, I often will look at donors on, on, online with a consult uh, with patients and if they have a specific concern can kind of comment and uh, see what they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I think you kind of just spoke to this, but this next question was about tips about choosing a good sperm donor, but you kind of went into that and look into their depending on the agency or whatever you're going through or bank that you're going through, just making sure that there's a, a sufficient amount of family history. You said in Canada, they recommend three generations. Um, would you recommend at the very least three generations? Yeah, three generations is standard. It's often harder to get more than three generations. So three generations is definitely sufficient. Um, what I will say though is um, with a carrier screening, 
it's often not as straightforward as we want it to be when, when picking a donor. Um, so the, the, the genes that are offered on a carrier screening test at one laboratory, um, one lab might test for 300 genes. Another lab might test for 400 genes. And so let's say uh, I, you know, I have eggs, I'm looking for a sperm donor. I got tested for 400 things. I'm a carrier for number 400 and I'm trying to find a sperm donor. And I see, oh, his, his report says negative for carrier screening. And I say, great, okay, he's negative, I'm good to go. It's not necessarily that simple because he was only tested for 300 things. You kind of have to go through with a fine tooth comb to see is the thing you're carrying on the list of things he was tested for because it might not necessarily be. Um, and that's another place where um, I'm very, very happy to help and, and kind of compare results because it's not uncommon that people are positive for something. They think that their donor has been tested and they just because it says negative doesn't necessarily mean that that gene was included on their test. Mm hmm. I guess you can, I don't know if it's available, but you can see whether or not you can see the breakdown in the carrier screening, right? And specifically what they were tested for. And then you could do like a, a eye to eye match, kind of see like, oh, is this it? Is this it? Yeah. And most of the sperm banks that I'm used to working with, um, I know some of them you have to pay for certain things. Usually carrier screening is something that's available with a free account to look at for each of the donors because it's so um, so relevant. It's not, it's, it's medically relevant to the health of your future children. So they're not usually withholding that from you. There's a couple of these are really good questions. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm. Okay. Uh, what's the, these have been great so far. This is wonderful. <laughs> uh, what's the success rate of HLM versus LLM? I'm guessing that's high level mosaic versus low level mosaic. Is that what that means? Yep. That's right. Okay. Um, so generally it does depend on if it's part of a chromosome. So what we call a segmental mosaic, um, or the whole chromosome, a, a whole chromosome mosaic. Um, if it's just a segment that's abnormal, high level and low level mosaics do just as well as one another. So the kind of the level of mosaicism doesn't really impact things. Um, once we get into whole chromosome mosaics, um, that's where um, we can see a difference. Um, so just for, for people who might not be aware, low level meaning that less of the sample is abnormal um, and high level meaning that more of the sample is abnormal. Um, there are other factors I might look at to narrow this number down more, but usually low level mosaics may have pregnancy rates in kind of the 35 to 45% range, um, whereas high level mosaics may be 15 to 30%, depending on the specifics. Good graded embryo, seven day blast, abnormal genetic testing, should I discard? We should have a consult there. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of things that I consider, um, it be just because it's such a personal question. Um, it depends on, again, the PGT laboratory that was used. Did they report mosaicism? Um, I mean, the straightforward answer is if it's abnormal, you, usually we, we discard, but I'm really used to working with, um, again, really the same po population as your podcast, people who are older, who are not making euploids, who want to learn more of these abnormal embryos. Um, so what I get into are, what's the chance this embryo could be mosaic? Um, so if the lab doesn't report mosaicism, 
that's a really hard question to answer, but maybe it gives you that deep level of detail that mm, there's a chance with that. Um, I would look at, is it a segmental abnormality versus whole chromosome? Because segmental has a higher chance of being a mosaic. Um, also just that individual person's kind of journey so far. What have they been through? What other options do they have? Is this really the last kind of um, Some people may end their journey and discard embryos and other people are going to transfer them even if they have these types of results and find any means necessary to do that. So um, usually with a day seven um, in an older um, egg provider, usually the results are accurate and the embryo won't be viable. But without seeing the report and kind of diving into all that, it's hard to know for sure. Yeah, sure. Like you kind of have to define what abnormal means, right? Yeah. Cause yeah, it's funny. I abnormal. Just reported, yeah. um, abnormal is not a, is not a result. It's, it's, it could be euploid. It could be mosaic or not euploid. It could be aneuploid, but it's just funny. I'm recording a little Instagram series of PGT myths. Um, and the very first one that I'm, uh, that I recorded today was that, uh, abnormal is not a world <laughs> that, that it, it, it should be broken down more. We should know. Does abnormal mean mosaic? Does it mean aneuploid? Does it mean no result? Because they're all so different. And so I'm usually very much a person that likes to use um, simple language that, you know, and um, normal and abnormal is normal, plain English language. But when it isn't communicating the, the details of what we need it to, that's when I bring out all the hard scientific terms. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Um, okay. So this next question, which I don't, I don't know that you have the answer to, you probably do, but um, why do some doctors not believe in mosaic embryos? My doctor told me that mine were abnormal, but mine were mosaic. <sighs> There's a lot of reasons for that. I think that there, there are so many reasons for that. So um, some doctors are um, up to date on the literature with what's been going on with mosaic embryos, and they see that there is some sort of chromosome abnormality in the sample, which is true, but they don't have the kind of detailed understanding of what that really means. Um, other times it might really be about um, protecting certain things, whether it's kind of trying to protect their patients from miscarriages. I've, I've worked with a doctor who was really hesitant to use mosaic embryos just because he'd seen people miscarry from untested embryos. And I think he was just at a point in his career where he was really wanting to do all he could to avoid miscarriage. And so hearing that there may be a higher rate of that is really something he wanted to avoid. But um, again, ultimately should be the patient's decision. Um, I think sometimes too, it's about when clinics are sharing their pregnancy rates, um, they want to be using the best embryos to have the highest pregnancy rates to bring people into the clinic and um, mosaic embryos are going to lower those. We know that. Um, so there, there could be lots of different factors. Um, it's, it's technically also, it's not a normal embryo. Um, so it, it, it does have an abnormality, but you're, you're more accurate as the patient and saying, well, it's, it's mosaic though. That's, that's really different. Yeah. And, and side note, totally unrelated and a complete tangent, but I don't believe in clinic success rates anymore <laughs> because I learned that they're, they're somewhat meaningless because there are things that you can do. Like if you turn away 40 plus year olds, your success rates are going to be higher. Right. Because yeah, yeah. Like the chances of being successful over 40 definitely decreases. Right. And so certainly if you turn people 
like that away, then your numbers are going to look better. Or if you encourage people to go to donor donor sooner, then same thing. You're going to have better success rates because they are technically successful. But so I have learned in the last uh, four, five years or so that those success rates are meaningless to me. They may be meaningful to some people, but to me, they're not meaningful at all because I know that they're um, doctored isn't the right word. I don't want people to think that people are fake reporting numbers because that's not true. But I think that they have been massaged. <laughs> they have. Yes. Yeah. There, there are ways that you can kind of manipulate your practice um, to, yeah, maybe, maybe conflate those numbers in the ways that you want that are not necessarily the best ways to approach patient care. Or does not truly reflect how successful you could be. Because again, if you had a 40 year old, right. And you, you, you know, turn away patients who are 42 and older or something, then that's going to be, or if, you know, your general rule is like, Hey, you can come if you're over 40, but just know you're going to be a donor egg or whatever. You know what I mean? Then I, I, yeah, I think that yeah. changes what that truly means. I'll probably get in trouble for saying I'm, that, but that's okay. <laughs> that's how I feel. Together. Okay. It sounds good. I like it. Teamwork. Um, okay. Em- embryo grading, always best practice to transfer in order of quality and grade. Um, not, not necessarily. So I have patients who um, make d- decisions for lots of different reasons. So I've even had people who have maybe one euploid remaining and a lot of mosaics. Um, they know they want more than one baby and they would really like to be able to come back for baby number two and know they have a euploid in the bank. So maybe they transfer a mosaic first so that if it's successful, they feel more comfortable with what they have left. Um, and so maybe so the similar things could be applied to grading. Um, I think that there are always reasons for doing things kind of against the grain or against what is usually recommended. And it just depends on your goals. If your goal is, you know, one baby as fast as possible, probably going with the embryo with that's chromosomally normal with the best grading is the way to get there. But people have lots of different goals and lots of different factors. So I think it just depends on what your, what all of your goals are and how they work together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is a question on inconclusive results. What causes results to come back inconclusive, inconclusive and can they provide the inconclusive findings? So there's kind of two main types of inconclusive results. Um, One where essentially they got genetic material from your embryo, but the result that they got was kind of too messy for them to really learn what it means. Um, So kind of going back to that metaphor of the chromosomes being like instruction books, um, it's kind of like the chromosomes are there, but they've been dropped in mud. And so we just can't read them. We can't tell you what's there. Um, so there isn't really a finding to give you. We, we can tell you that the, the quality of the data that we got from the test is too messy. It, the quality is insufficient for us to give you a result. Um, again, probably doesn't mean anything about your embryo, but the sample itself kind of gave us messy data. Um, that could be because there was a problem with the sample and how it was transported to and from the laboratory. Um, 
maybe just a random problem with how the biopsy was done. We're talking about such small cells. There's just so many little things that can happen biologically that can impact the DNA and make it look that way. Um, It's not my real area of expertise, but that's kind of what I understand from talking to the lab genetic counselors. Um, the, The other type of inconclusive result is when we get no DNA or not enough DNA to be able to do the test in the first place. Um, and that can happen for lots of different reasons too. Um, you know, when we're, when the embryologists are taking the cells to do the test, um, a lot of cells kind of look the same, um, but some cells may not have a nucleus inside them and that's what holds the chromosomes. Um, and so if we kind of get some empty cells just by chance, there won't be any DNA there to test. Um, or if they kind of get a cell that's that's um, degrading or not the greatest quality, there's just so many little things that can happen that can impact that. Um, so there usually isn't a result, though, or any findings to communicate to um, other than maybe a little bit more specific about why the result was inconclusive. And then... Um... I know someone will probably want to know, well, can't we just retest? Can't we just go in and retest them? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you absolutely can. Um, That would involve thawing your embryo, um, taking another sample of cells, um, freezing your embryo again while you're waiting for the result. Um, And then if you're using the embryo, thawing it a second time. Um, And there's risks that come with that, not only taking more cells away, but a lot from freezing and thawing a second time as well. And so for some people, that is absolutely the best route to take. They need to know that genetic result. Um, And so if there's a a small risk of harming the embryo by retesting, they're absolutely willing to take that chance and and they'll do it. But there are other people who, you know, maybe are in the camp of if if this is a normal embryo, if it's euploid with normal chromosomes, doing the test a second time might be enough to hurt the embryo so that it's not going to be successful. And so maybe if they're comfortable enough sitting with the unknown result, you know, and thinking, let's let's hope that it's euploid and give it a chance. Then if it is euploid, it's kind of undergone less intervention and the embryo and its structure are kind of healthier and have a a better chance of being successful. Yeah, because I think um, for someone like me who's older, I probably would be less likely to take that risk only because I don't have very many to work with anyway. So, you know, I think it just kind of depends on where you are, who you are and kind of what reserves you have that will help you make that decision. But I've heard the same thing, I think, from embryologists that they say, you know, it is risky to pull the embryo out again, thaw it and then re-biopsy it and then freeze it again. And then if you transfer, then you got to thaw it a third time. And it's, it's a lot to consider. And there's also no guarantee we'll get a result the second time. It could be inconclusive again. If there's just something going on with that embryo's DNA that's making it messy, we we might make it go through all that and you might still be back where you started. So um, I think that it's good to talk through with with whoever's a a part of your care team. And um, the grading of the embryo might play a role as well. I think good graded embryos are probably going to survive that better than a poorly graded embryo. But um, yeah, it's really, again, just depends on what your goals are and, and how all of the factors play with one another. Um, okay. So if people want to connect with you or if they want to talk to you about consultation or if they have additional questions or anything like that, how do they reach you? Yeah. So my website is dnaage.com. So dna 
ide.com. Um, and all of my information is there. If you want to book an appointment with me, I have resources available, um, um, just for just different podcasts that I've been on YouTube videos, all sorts of things. Um, but I'm also on Instagram and YouTube at DNA GC. Um, and my professional Instagram is Megan Doyle GC as well. So what usually happens in a consultation? Do people just come to you with all their reports and then kind of sit down and you take a history or how does that work? Yeah, it depends on the indication. If it's for something like PGT, mosaic embryo, abnormal embryo review, um, I would get your reports beforehand and get a little bit of information about your fertility uh, uh, history. Um, I'm a very much a visual learner. So all my consults are, are by video if that works for, for my patient. And I put together slides to kind of show you what the different things look like. So I'm not... Uh, uh, trying to draw things with my fingers in the air on the on the webcam. I can show you nice pictures of what things look like. Um, and I share those slides with you and put together a consult note so that you're not trying to remember everything in the moment. <laughs> I, I am always one of those people who thinks of all my questions afterwards. And so I'd like for you to be able to kind of focus while we're together. Um, but I really meet you where you're at. So if you've listened to everything I've ever spoken about and done, and you feel like you know a ton about PGT, then I'm not going to go over the basics of PGT. We're going to start with what you need to know. Um, and that's kind of how I start the appointment is, you know, how can we use this time together The you know, what's going to be best for you? Um, but I really focus on your embryos. What research do we know? And um, what decisions are you trying to make? And um, what are the factors that are, you're kind of considering in those decisions? And I kind of think of myself like a decision facilitator. So what's, you know, what's important to you? I'll pull in a science piece and we'll figure out what's going to work best for you together. But um, yeah, I don't remember what you asked me if I'm honest. <laughs> no, it's all good. I just said, what, what was a consult like with you? But you you covered it. It's great. Yeah. Um, well, okay, great. <laughs> yeah. well, thanks so much for being here to talk to us about all of this stuff. It's really complex and I'm sure there's more that we can talk about uh, at another time because I definitely would love to explore these topics a little bit more and maybe we can even dig deeper to some of the stuff that you talked about um, earlier and kind of really explore. Maybe we can break down, you know, some of the stuff a, more granular for those who really want to know about it. Um, but I really appreciate your, yeah, I appreciate your time. Hopefully, yeah, you'll come back. We'll find some time and find some other topics to talk about because I feel like it's endless. <laughs> I, I do too, but you and your listeners have had really, really great questions, just really, really thoughtful questions that I think will be helpful for a lot of people. So thank you for having me and letting me get this information out here. And uh, I really appreciate what you're doing to help the community. No, totally. I mean, I think what you're doing is really big too. I mean, helping us have a better understanding of these things, which is really complex because I get these reports. I have no idea what any of it means and, and how meaningful it is. You just know if it's normal or abnormal, right? You, you get that call and you say, they're like, it's, it's normal or it's abnormal. And you're like, okay. And then that's kind of like end of discussion. So having yeah. an, another option to kind of really understand it a little bit more is kind of nice. And then you feel really good about, you know, if you're going to discard or not discard or whatever plan you choose, um, you'll feel a little bit better about. So I think having a resource like this is really great because like you said, you're not tied to the clinic. You're not tied to a lab. You're completely independent and unbiased. Well, you're biased in your own way, but you're unbiased to 
a particular group or whatever, you know what I mean? So um, you truly are on the side, not that other people aren't on the side of the patient, but then it really is like you can have this really candid discussion about what it means. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much. And um, we'll talk soon because I'm sure we'll message back and forth about the next coming topics because I'm so fascinated. Yes, I appreciate your time being here today and we will talk soon. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes. And I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.